Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Molly Campbell about her paper, Examining the Collateral Effects of Reducing Voice Level in vocal stereotypy and functional speech. Molly is a board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level who practices in Atlanta, Georgia, and works with children with autism spectrum disorder and their families across settings in homes, the community, schools, and in a clinic. This August, she will be assisting with the startup of a mock preschool with Dr. Claire Paul from Georgia State University. Molly is passionate about culturally responsive and inclusive ABA practices. Prior to becoming a BCBA, Molly was a teacher for 10 years where she taught Spanish, English to speakers of other languages, special education, and also coordinated special education programs. Molly completed her practicum at the Autism, Behavior, and Communication Clinic at the University of Memphis in their mock preschool program, which is where she conducted her research for her dissertation and the article that we're going to be speaking about today. Without further ado, here is my interview with Molly Campbell. Hello, Molly, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you and to hear about your paper. But before we do, we love to hear about our guest's background and sort of the, the journey that led them to doing this type of research. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. So um, I did not set out to be a behavior analyst initially. Um, I, I did my undergraduate in Latin American studies in Spanish, and then I joined the Peace Corps. And I was in the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic, working with youth and children, um, working at a girl's home. And then that, that led me when I returned to the United States to uh, teach Spanish. And so I taught Spanish and got really interested in working with children with um, emotional and behavioral disabilities. So I got my master's in special education um, at George Washington University. And then I taught for about 10 years, um, directed special education. And I just started having more and more children I was working with who were on the autism spectrum. Mm. So I really wanted to know how to better support the children in my classroom, which led me to ABA. And what route did you take to get into ABA? Well, initially, um, it was I had a self-contained classroom and it was a Montessori classroom. And a couple of my students had uh, BCBAs who they worked with who came to the classroom. And so I just started to uh, learn more about ABA through that experience because I'd always heard about it, but mm-hmm. I didn't really understand exactly what it was. Um, and then, you know, once I started working with them and I saw that it was really helping my students and I was able to use the techniques that the BCBAs taught me, that made me want to go study ABA. So um, I enrolled at University of Memphis and completed a doctorate in May 2020. Congratulations. Thank you. And what are you doing now? So um, I, let's see, I passed my boards in 2019 and started working in 2020 in March at a clinic um, right before the pandemic. And so that was a very interesting time. (laughs) Like two weeks before the pandemic, I started working. so that was, that was an interesting time, and it led me to doing more in-home as a result of the pandemic, mm. which I've been doing now for more than a year. And um, in, 
actually started working also in May with Dr. Claire Paul from Georgia State University. She is starting a mock preschool class uh, like program um, at a clinic, which I'm going to be working with her on starting in August. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that. I love your story. I love hearing about people's background and sort of the odd journeys that people take and no one's is the same. And it's just cool to hear that, you know, you, you kind of took a very roundabout way of getting into behavior analysis or had a sort of a longer journey before getting into it. Um, so really cool. I think a lot of, I think that'll resonate with a lot of people with this particular research study that we're going to be discussing. Was that part of your dissertation or part of your time at, while completing your dissertation or, or where did this study come from? Yes, so um, this was part of my um, practicum actually at the University of Memphis. And um, so for my practicum, I was both at a school, so my previous school providing behavioral support to the school part-time. And then my other half of my time was spent um, at a clinic at the University of Memphis called the Autism Behavior and Communication Clinic. And that is where I met the participant who's in this study. Um, I was very interested in vocal stereotypy and this um, participant engaged in vocal stereotypy. And so that's where the idea for this came. And um, so, yes, it was my dissertation. And the idea was driven by seeing a client who was struggling with this particular mm -hmm. behavior, it sounds like. Yes, um, and also having seen that in the classroom, you know, just in my experiences as an educator, um, seeing vocal stereotypy and really not knowing what to do before about vocal stereotypy, which drove me to start researching more um, I did a literature review on it for, as a, you know, project for, for my doctorate. And then I decided that I wanted to make that the focus of my dissertation. That's awesome. Did you find much in your literature review? Yes. So my literature review, um, which I also have right in front of me, uh, I got really interested in using antecedent intervention because, mm. you know, I just knew from being a classroom teacher, and I wanted to focus on interventions that could be implemented in, um, in multiple settings, such as the classroom. And I was really interested in antecedent interventions that could be more easily implemented by people like classroom teachers. Awesome. And so that led me to, um, to be interested in, uh, in how you can develop a, a SD for vocal stereotypy to, to decrease it. I love the focus on interventions that can actually be implemented by classroom teachers or people in real life applied settings when you don't have an army of behavior analysts mm -hmm. uh, ready to do anything you ask them to do. And so I especially appreciated the approach that you took in selecting the particular interventions that you assessed in this paper. It's a major passion of mine. Great. For people who are new to the concept of vocal stereotypy and maybe even a little bit of the, the type of discrimination training that you were doing, could you just give us a, a overall introduction or sort of a basic introduction to the topic? Sure. So um, vocal stereotypy, which you know, first you have to define what vocal stereotypy is. And so there's like the, the definition that the DSM will give you. And then every paper will use, you know, that's an intervention will usually give you like some sort of a definition of what they mean by vocal stereotypy. So you kind of have to start there. And vocal stereotypy is usually defined as um, non-contextual speech, or it can be scripting or noises. It's basically not related to the environment or is not like functional to the situation. Mm. So discrimination training, you know, is usually pairing a behavior with a certain SD. Um, it could be like, oftentimes it is a, a card with a color, you know, and green might be like, you can engage in vocal stereotypy and red might be, you may not engage in vocal stereotypy. And then you pair that with um, a setting or a place and maybe a time 
And then you say, in this setting, place time, you can engage in vocal stereotypy, vocal stereotypy, and in this one, you cannot. And then you teach that to the client through discrimination training, and then like providing some sort of a reinforcement generally. Mm. Or there's also the opposite side, which would be like punishment per se, you know, for engaging in vocal stereotypy. Like, for example, uh, right now we're using a green voice green voice being meaning no stereotypy, let's say. Um, and or sorry, no, you might say like right now we're not engaging, you know, we're going to use um, a classroom voice, let's say. And so you show them the red card to indicate no vocal stereotypy at this point in time. They don't engage in vocal stereotypy for a certain amount of time and then they receive reinforcement. Um, so it, it kind of depends, but that's basically how, you know, you're developing through discrimination training, making the card be an SD. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, you know, in your case, and I think sort of broadly speaking with, with that type of intervention, you're creating some sort of contrived stimulus that then becomes associated with consequences related to any particular behavior in your case. And we'll, we'll dive into the specific procedures in a moment you're looking at setting a contrived stimulus saying this is ultimately when reinforcement can be obtained from vocal stereotypy and here's when it can't and and just in setting the stimulus parameters around those schedules of reinforcement. With your particular study, you focused in on a five-year-old with autism. Could you tell us a little bit about him and, and perhaps the specific type of vocal stereotypy he was engaging in? Sure. So um, this is a, a little boy who I had known for a year at the clinic, and he was five. And it was so it was this, a year. And we were in the summer semester before the school year started, and so he had um, developed a large repertoire of skills. He had a lot of mans and tacks. Um, he could read and write, and he was getting ready to go to kindergarten in the fall. Um, but one thing that I was worried about him uh, for kindergarten um, was his vocal stereotypy because, mm. you know, we wanted to mainstream him as much as possible. And I knew that that would perhaps be something that would impede his ability to be in a less restrictive set setting um, because he engaged in loud outbursts of vocal stereotypy, which tended to be noises and scripting from video games. Hmm. Um, and so I knew like, okay, if he's in the classroom and he starts doing this, you know, it, it may make it more challenging for him to be in a less restrictive setting. So my goal for him in terms of getting him ready for kindergarten was to help him to reduce, I was actually reducing the volume, the, the magnitude of the vocal stereotypy. Hmm. So my thought was teach him to use a classroom voice and lower the level of the voice volume. And then I wanted to see if that would have an effect then, like a collateral effect on his type of vocalization. Gotcha. So you weren't necessarily looking at, at least your intervention, directly eliminating vocal stereotypy. It was simply about decreasing the magnitude of it, right? So the, the, the volume. Yes. This is sort of an odd question. So maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. Could you give us an example of like something he, he would say? I know you said it was like movie or video game. <laughs> yeah, scripts. actually, I remember it very well because he loved um, like Mario Brothers, you know, and oh, yeah. Mario Kart and everything. So he used to say like, whoa, Mario and, and things like that. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And he's saying these things very loud and very, very yeah. disruptively. Okay. In the classroom. Um, and I could definitely see the fun behind saying that. It's, right. kind of fun. it's fun to say. Right. Um, <laughs> but I just thought, well, maybe if he said it quieter, he would be less likely to say it because I think part of the fun of that is like the volume. Right. You know, the, the exclamation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then you ended up ultimately sort of, again, targeting the, the lowering of the volume. And to do that, you had to set up what I thought to be a very sort of clever uh, intervention type. So could you begin to tell us uh, a little bit about the specific procedures you use to take on this behavior? 
Sure. Um, so I was just, th I was thinking about what to teach him and how this would probably, you know, just kind of thinking ahead into what he might encounter next year in kindergarten, having spent a lot of time in kindergarten classrooms, you know, um, I knew like oftentimes teacher will say, the teachers will say, uh, we're going to use a classroom level voice or mm -hmm. we're going, maybe they might have a level, like a level two voice, you know? And so thinking like, this is something he's probably going to encounter and that he's probably going to be told, you know, I want to teach him how to be able to moderate his voice to know what a classroom level voice is. But then I realized that's hard because you can't actually really hear your voice that well <laughs> right <laughs> you know I can't hear my voice and then it's like when you hear a recording and, and you go oh wow that's what I sound like right. um, don't remind me having done a lot of these <laughs> a lot of these podcasts and having to to listen to my voice over and over again it's excruciating <laughs> yeah, exactly so um and so I I was thinking about that and I was like wow it's kind of hard to actually know what your voice um sounds like and so then I thought well maybe if he had some way to concretely see what that voice should be at, mm. then he would be able to um, distinguish and discriminate between what is a classroom level voice and what is not. And so um, I was like, well, how do we do that? Oh, a decibel meter. And I actually had a, a like I, my, the ABC program I was working with was also in the um, communication um, well, what do, you, what do you call it? Uh, speech and language pathology building. Uh, and so they had all these very interesting different devices that you could use. And I met with a professor there, Dr. Booter, who was very kind to show me a bunch of different things that they had. And we looked at low tech and high tech um, options. And I, I went with the lower tech option because I actually realized, I thought, well, what could a teacher use? What could right. be applied broadly? And then, you know, what is actually the lower tech option seems to be better in terms of the visual for him and that we could just carry it around with us as a, it's on my phone. I just downloaded a, um, an app that I found and that was free. <laughs> do you know the name of the app by chance? So I, I figured that you might ask that. <laughs> um, so I looked, I looked at it again and I know I went to Apple and I downloaded it. <laughs> it's, it appears to be from China because everything's in Chinese um, when you try to buy it. Uh, but no, it actually just calls itself DB. DB. And it's one of the first ones that will come up. DB decibel meter. Okay. It's one of the first ones that will come up on the Apple um, store. And it's free, which for me as a grad student was important. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and I also really like this one. I looked at some different ones, but I really like that it gave like a, a nice visual feed out, visual feed that you could see. And then it would tell you, it shows you the color, but it also tells you in decibel meters, um, you know, like gives you an, an actual number, which was also very important. That's awesome. Yeah. And with the speech pathologist or otherwise, was there any way to test the reliability mm -hmm. or accuracy of, of the decibel meter? Yeah, so we uh, calibrated it. So they were very kind to give me another decibel meter that didn't have a visual, but it just had the numbers. Mm. And so I used that to cal calibrate and test my uh, decibel meter on my phone to make sure that I was actually accurate. So I had both of them at each point in time and they showed me how far back I needed to put it from the clients to get an accurate readout. Because if you get too close to a decibel meter, you'll also, it won't be accurate. There has okay. to be a certain distance. So yeah. for behavior analysts who may be interested in doing an intervention like this, yes. you pointed them in the direction of the app, which is cool, but you, we probably need to also get a, probably an official decibel meter as right. well to sort of calibrate the app. But, but after that, it'll be pretty reliable, sounds like. Yes, I think so. I think it's a good idea. I mean, especially if you're doing it scientifically, you know, for, for research, especially, yes, you would need to buy an, a decibel meter to make sure it's calibrated. And it was a, you know, not that expensive from Radio Shack, like $20. So that's cool. Yeah. And that was something the speech pathologist pointed you in the direction of? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
that's a really cool example of cross-discipline collaboration. Yeah. yeah, I really, I really enjoy getting to, um, you know, meet with the speech and language pathologists and, and learning more about what they do too. And they have other really neat software that they use with, um, with, you know, their clients, their patients to like see decibel meters, they can track it. It's very cool. Nice. So you set up the sort of the device to be able to actually allow you to measure and and provide some level of feedback. You spoke a little bit before about sort of the different types of verbal behavior we may be observing here. You talked about like a loud voice versus a conversational voice. Could you talk about how you, how you define those in this paper? Sure. Sure. So I asked this, um, Again, this is where the, the cross-discipline really came in handy because I asked, okay, so what should we be aiming for in terms of decibel meter? Hmm. And they said that 55 would be considered like a conversational kind of indoor voice, you know, like not damaging to one's eardrums. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's what I set it out with based on their feedback. And then that correlated with my decibel meter and the colors also of green because the decibel meter, it's like one of those like right changing color ones where like 55 is nice and green. And then once you get over 55, you start getting more into the yellowish color and then it goes yellow, orange, red. And, and you know, red is like way too loud. And was that, was like that 55 threshold, was that set up on the app or did you have to set that or? Was- no, that was set on the app. So that's awesome. You know, the, the, yeah, because the app has like all the different, you know, they say 60 is loudly, 50 is conversation. So 55 is kind of in the middle there where you would say it's kind of a loud conversation, but it could be like appropriate for a classroom where you are having to, you know, kind of project your voice. That makes sense. So you, you, de- you define conversation at, at below 55, then loud voice at above 55. Yes. You also looked at functional speech versus vocal stereotypy. Could you talk about mm-hmm. the differences between those two? Sure. So I, um, for training purposes, you know, I created a, um, a definition and a procedure for um, procedural integrity of how we would define um, vocal stereotypy and gave examples and non-examples. So, you know, example of vocal stereotypy was examples of, of um, verbalizations that the client engaged in, such as the noises. I gave you the example of like his video game speak. Um, and those were defined as vocal stereotypy. And then non-vocal stereotypy was any functional speech you know, like, may I go to the bathroom or answering a question or making a statement about something that was contextual to the environment. So that was defined as functional speech. Got you. And so Mm -hmm. to evaluate this particular intervention, to look at those different behaviors that you're measuring, you set up a, a task that seemed to be sort of somewhat based on a, a conversation with uh, an experimenter. Could you tell us how you sort of set up this procedure? Sure. For baseline. Yeah. Are you referring to? Yes. So the client, um, he had some goals that were intraverbal WH questions. And so these were questions that we had been working on that he was familiar with. And so those were the questions that we were presenting to him and baseline as part of his regular session. Um, and then measuring whether he engaged in functional speech or vocal stereotypy when presented with those tasks, which were normal tasks that he did during therapy. Gotcha. And so you would see throughout those WH questions, you would, you would see potentially both functional speech, which I suppose would be answering those questions Mm-hmm. or vocal stereotypy. Right, right. And so sometimes, you know, instead of like answering a question or in a pause, he would engage in vocal stereotypy. And then sometimes he would answer the question. Gotcha. And of course, during baseline, no visual decibel meter. I imagine you had to have been measuring 
his. Yes, I had it to myself and I wasn't, you know, telling him. I didn't say anything about vocal stereotypy or voice level because I didn't want him to be aware that I was measuring that. You know, I just wanted to try to capture what he would do naturally. Gotcha. So then after you collect baseline data and I think your, your graphs really couldn't be much clearer, shows, you know, a high level of, of vocal stereotypy. Once you get those baseline measures, you switch into sort of a, what seemed to me to be a sort of a two-part discrimination training, starting with shaping the conversational voice. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of pieces to it. When I was reading the, when I was reading the paper, I was like, wow, there, she's doing a lot for this particular section of this training. Could you, could you kind of walk us through what that looked like? Sure. Yeah. It, it kind of was a lot because there was <laughs> a lot of things I was measuring. Um, but yeah, so I was measuring both. So I basically had kind of four categories. And so I had functional speech that was above um, 50, 55 functional speech that was 55 or below. Um, stereotypical speech that was above 55, stereotypical speech that was 55 or below. So I was kind of looking at like four categories at all times, um, which was tricky. But uh, I knew that I wanted to do that because I had a theory that if he was not engaging in loud speech, you know, as an over 55, that it would also impact the type of speech that he mm. was engaging in. And so that's what I was curious because I, I had just kind of wondered that all along with his um, vocal stereotypy because I was like, when he's answering a question or just engaging in normal conversation, he's not, you know, like having these vocal outbursts and yelling. So I thought that it was probably correlated to the stereotypy was also causing the loud the magnitude of the speech. Gotcha. And so you were, you were measuring all of those throughout and we'll, we'll jump into the results in a moment. So how did you begin to, to shape that conversational speech? Yeah. So um, then I presented him the decibel meter and um, you know, I told him like this, this is going to measure how the voice level. And so basically we're trying to work on having a classroom level voice And we talked about like what that is. Um, And then I showed him the decibel meter and I said, okay, so right now I'm using a classroom level voice. This is the kind of voice that we're going to be using. Okay, you try it, like let him play with it a little bit. Um, And then I said, okay, here's the green level. Here's the green card. And when I show you this green card, I want you to use your classroom level voice. Didn't Mm -hmm. say anything to him about the kind of speech he should be using, but I just said, use your classroom level voice. Um, And then, so we did four sessions in which he was, um, in which he was shown the decibel meter. And in order for him to receive reinforcement, he had to have at least 90% at or below 55 decibel meters. And then once he had achieved that, which was within four sessions, I turned the decibel meter away from him and he had to get at least 80% at or below 55. And the still reason there, I, still, uh-huh. the, uh, just still there in the green stimuli phase. Right, right. Okay. Um, and the reason for that was I knew that, you know, he wouldn't always have the decibel meter available to him, like in a classroom, for example. Right. And I wanted to make sure that he could actually, when presented the green card, give me a green level voice without having to see it on a decibel meter because the problem with the decibel meter once you go into like a classroom setting or where there's multiple people <laughs> is that it's picking up all their voices. Unless you have like a mic attached to your particular student, it's going to pick them all up and it's going to get interference. Yeah, I was just imagining what a decibel meter would do in a, in a typical kindergarten classroom. <laughs> Right. It'd be like red. <laughs> yeah. It'd be utter chaos. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Cause one of the questions when I was reading it initially was in, in many ways, the actual decibel meter could potentially function as a type of discriminative stimulus. Why add another discriminative stimulus contrived discriminative stimulus 
well, you, the decibel meter isn't going to be functional in the classroom, and it's probably not going to be super easy for, for teachers to have their phone or an iPad following around the student rather than just having a green card available. That makes sense. Right. I think it's good for teaching. Um, I think it's good for actually teaching students how to moderate their voice initially, um, and that's kind of like a teaching and feedback procedure, but then to use it all the time as your measure of what a individual student's decibel level is, is, is probably not really going to be practical in a classroom. Right. Well, it makes sense in terms of the biofeedback. When I, when I was reading this paper, I was instantly like, this is a really cool example of immediate biofeedback. I've actually attempted to work with clients, one client in particular, on the volume of his voice. It wasn't necessarily related to vocal stereotypy, mm-hmm. but... I wish I had this app and had read this paper prior to working with that client because I think the procedure would have gone a lot smoother had we had something like this available. Well, I'm glad it can be helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. So we've talked about sort of the the discriminative stimuli, SD you set up. Did you mm-hmm. also set up a, an S delta and what did that look like? Uh, so there was also the note card. Right. And so during the green card, uh, you know, after we had done the discrimi- discrimination training, we also had the, the no card phase. And so during the no card phase, in which, of course, as the no card would imply, there was no card presented. Um, but I was still measuring the voice level because I wanted to see, you know, is it, is the green card actually taking on the SD property? What about with the no card? You know, since it's alternating treatments, you have the green card and the no card. Um, to see what the vocalizations were during the no card phase, um, what was the voice volume, and then also about vocal stereotypy, what was the vocal stereotypy rate during that phase as well? And, yes, those were alternated. And so the sort of SD phase is the green card. S delta is really the absence mm-hmm. of, the, of the green card, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, you did some generalization probes following the study. Could you talk about those? Yes. Yeah, so then I did a generalization probe following the study in which I used the, um, sorry, the green card and the no card to see if doing the generalization probe was in a different setting. So it was in like a group setting Mm. and it was doing different activity than we had done with a client previously. And then it did carry over into the probe phase to show that the green card, um, there was, you know, more functional speech and the conversation Um, sorry, the voice magnitude was correlated to that. So it seemed to carry over, although I definitely wish I could have done more probes in more settings. That's the, that's the, (laughs) the, the feeling of every study ever, right? I mean, we always want more generalization. Did you have difficulty measuring the behavior in the group setting for the reasons we discussed earlier? With the decibel meter? Yeah. Yes. Um, Well, at that point, you know, having trained myself and the um, my my people who did IOA. So I trained them on this is what the um, green level voice sounds like. This is what it doesn't sound like. And then I had them, you know, gauge that. And so, yes, that is where it became much more difficult, uh, like in the it was when it was individual, that was not a problem. But when it was like the probe with the group, yes, that can become a problem because it's hard to gauge those two against each other. Right. You know? But you were right. able to, to at least do it uh, for one data point. Right. So could you tell us, now that we sort of have set out the procedures, could you tell us a little bit about what you saw? So I guess starting with the initial analysis and, and the, the data you have on figure one, what, what did you end up seeing on this sort of first level analysis? Sure. So um, let's see. I was looking at first and figure one is just showing the, um, the magnitude of voice. And so, you know, I have 
baseline loud voice was at 44%. Um, conversational voice was at 41%. The data is kind of going up and down. Um, and then during discrimination training, I looked at, parsed it out into um, conversational and loud, looking at green card versus no card. Um, and so for green card conversational was 68% of intervals and green card loud was 4.5% of intervals. So you can see how the green card, you know, there was a big difference there between the difference of conversational and loud with the green card. Um, then I looked at no card, compared that to no card and no card for loud was 44.5%. And for conversation was 29.25%. Just looking at the, the multi-element graph that you have on here, it seems, I mean, it really effectively demonstrates the differentiation in responding across these conditions. You see green card conversational uh, as high rates, green card loud, very low to basically no behaviors occurring. And then the lack of discrimination or, or as severe discrimination between the no card, both loud and conversational. So pretty, pretty clear graph, if you ask me. Yes. And the, um, this particular participant I was working with did very well with this kind of role based behavior. Um, he loves roles. <laughs> So, you know, whenever I would like present him with, with a rule and he always wanted to know, am I doing it? You know, am I, am I following directions? Right. <laughs> so um, I think especially with this participant, it worked well with him because he tended to like that kind of knowing what he was supposed to do. That so, makes sense. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, and when you were talking about the, the participant, the fact that he was highly verbal obviously is going to help with setting this sort of role governed or role around, around the, the, the volume of the voice. Mm -hmm. So in the sort of first graph, first level analysis, it seems very clear that the green card is controlling conversational volume and, and that you can see discrimination there. You also provide two subsequent graphs, figure two and three, where you do a little bit more analysis there. Could you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about what you were looking at in this sort of phase of the study? Sure, so I wanted to see, um, as I said before, I wanted to see if there was a collateral effect on the type of vocalization. Hmm. So then I wanted to go from just, okay, here's what I you know, directly intervened on was the voice level, the magnitude. So now I wanna see, because I took the data, um, if there was also a, like a, an effect there on the type of speech. Because I think while decreasing uh, challenging behavior is great, you know, at the same time we wanna be teaching skills. Right. And so we want to see, we don't want it to like, you know, um, just select and whatever behavior replaces that, we would like for the participant to be able to increase on functional skills. So then I was looking at functional speech and at stereotypy. And so figure two shows functional speech in baseline was at 40.4%. Um, and then a discrimination training, we're looking at the green card and the no card. And for the green card, it was at 66.5%. And then for the note card, it was at 51.25%. But there is a bit of an outlier there in, um, was it session 10, which kind of skewed that a bit, um, which I mentioned there. Right. And then, yeah, so could, you know, sometimes those outliers can change your data, but <laughs> data are never uh, perfect. That's for sure. Yeah. And then, um, looking at stereotypy and baseline was 47%. And then looking at stereotypy when it was at the, with the green card was at 10% versus 21% with the no card. 
So seeing a bit of that decrease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a a clinical decrease there also, I would say in in stereotypy and an increase in functional speech. And I was really hoping that there would be an increase in functional speech because I, I want him to talk. Um, I don't want him to just be like mute just because he's not engaging in, in vocal stereotypy. I want him to be able to increase his ability to participate in the classroom. And did you see that as much? With the functional speech? Yeah. Definitely. I feel like he was, you know, raising his hand and he was, you know, talking more functionally in the classroom. He seemed, you know, I mean, the data shows that the functional speech did increase, but then just watching him more engaged in, in the lesson, you know, when I was showing him the green card and he was like, okay, I'm going to use a classroom level voice, but I didn't tell him, I didn't say like, don't talk, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't want that. No, absolutely not. We don't want to decrease all behaviors, right? Just uh, right. the problematic ones. And right. then this, the third figure that you have, could you could you tell us a little bit about that and the the variables you were looking at there? Sure. So then this was kind of looking at then um, a combination of the two of more like I would say the the challenging behavior, uh, which I was attempting to intervene on, and that was um, vocal stereotypy that was above. 55 decibels because to me it's like if you're engaging in vocal stereotypy but it's really quiet that's probably less problematic than if you're engaging in a very loud vocal stereotypy that may make it harder for you to participate in the classroom um, and for others also to be in the classroom with you so that I also want to look at um, that kind of crossover so during baseline we can see that the Vocal stereotypy above 55 decibels was 43%. And during the green card with the intervention, it decreased to 0%. Um, vocal stereotypy that was above 55 decibels was 0%. And the no card was elevated um, and more than 0%. Although it's still lower than baseline. But. Yeah. Well, I think looking at the three different graphs and and sort of looking at the specific numbers, it seems clear that your intervention affected the conversation, the conversational uh, volume that you, and that you're also seeing, as you call it, collateral effects and that it's also decreasing vocal stereotypy overall. Is that, is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's, that was my general overall purpose of the study was to see if just intervening on one dimension of behavior, so magnitude of speech, voice volume, would have a collateral effect, therefore, on the type of vocalizations, this functional speech versus stereotypy. And that's what you saw um, in this case study, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You, in addition to obtaining data on all this, it looks like you also conducted a social validity questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I also felt like it was really important uh, to make sure that my participant felt good about this intervention. You know, he's five years old, Um, but people have talked about how stereotypy can be calming Hmm. and how it can cause distress um, to not be able to engage in stereotypy. So to me, it was really important that I didn't want to tell him that he couldn't do that. Um, but I did want to find a way that he wouldn't, um, be inhibited from going into all settings. So I wanted to also see how he felt about it. And so I used, it was called the children's intervention rating post profile post-intervention and I created like a, it's, a, it's like a sliding scale with a smiley face. And so it goes like, you know, okay to like super smiley and then like sad face. And I had him, you know, I asked him different things. How did you like it? How did you feel about it? And had him rate it for me. 
Um, and then I also, I did one for his mom, not with smiley faces, but with, <laughs> with a normal Likert scale. And then also with one of the therapists who's working at the clinic um, and assisting with the intervention as well. That's awesome. And what did you see? Um, I saw that like the results said everyone had rated it either agree or strongly agree in terms of positivity. So um, hopefully those were honest answers, but um, you know, it seemed that my participant enjoyed it, you know, for at least from what he expressed to me, um, he never, never any tears or tantrums about it. Um, <laughs> he seemed to really enjoy, you know, the green card and then obviously having like the, the play after he also liked. That's awesome. That's, mm -hmm. that's really, it's really great that you decided to look at the social validity because you're absolutely right. I think stereotypy in general, whether it's motor or vocal, is a very tricky area to intervene on because there is a piece of this is a trait that many people with autism and a behavior that many people with autism engage in that they like engaging in, right? And so is it disruptive? And if it is, how do we minimize it without taking away a piece of their personality or common behaviors that they like to engage in. And so looking at the social validity piece, I think was a really, really nice touch of the study. Thank you. Yeah, that was really important to me um, to be, you know, to be responsive to those with, with autism too, and to listen to what they have to say and how they feel about interventions. Um, and to not just say like, oh, we decreased the behavior, therefore it was effective. Um, you know, also how did they feel about it? Yeah, and that piece is critical, I think, to an effective approach to, to treating behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think we've covered the results of the study. Are there other important pieces of the study or considerations that the listener should be aware of? Sure. Um, let's see. Well, I... So I think that the study does show that, you know, you can use things like a decibel meter to help regulate voice volume, which I hope is, is helpful to other practitioners. And that it's also, there are cost-effective ways to do this. Like I said, the app that I got was free. Um, and then also thinking about um, one thing that I really wanted to think about was the collateral effects that maybe I planned for them in this uh, intervention, but I did that really from reading other studies um, like Haley et al. and La Prime and Dietrich, uh, which discussed that they, that they saw some changes in um, unplanned changes when they were decreasing vocal stereotypy and they saw more like functional speech. And so I thought, oh, interesting, but they hadn't really measured for that. Uh, it was just something that they noted. And so that's why I really thought it would be interesting to kind of plan that from the beginning with my study, even though I wasn't intervening on it directly to see if I could prove that. Um, but I think that when we do studies, it's also important to think about when you're decreasing a um, challenging behavior, what behaviors do you, what behaviors are you planning to therefore take the place of that challenging behavior absolutely. and to try to plan for that in terms of skills? Absolutely. That's, that is absolutely critical, right? Something's going to fill the void. And if you're not planning on what that is going to be and helping a client select, you know, adaptive, more appropriate behaviors, chances are they're probably not going to be filled with a very socially appropriate and adaptive skills. Right. So that's why I um, really wanted to make that a focus of my study. And I learned that from reading other studies. Um, of course, there are limitations with this study. Um, one of them to start with would be that, um, you know, there was a change in type of vocalization, um, but it is possible that there's also an abolishing effect since the client was able to engage in vocal stereotypy during the no card condition, perhaps uh, that was an abolishing effect. There's also like a rapid alternation of the conditions um, and having more time in between the conditions would obviously have been more ideal. Um, 
<laughs> I was running the study, trying to get the study done before he went, before he went off to kindergarten <laughs> um, and left me. So, yeah. uh, but obviously it would have been better to have more time and then also to run more generalization probes across uh, more st- settings with different therapists, with classroom teachers. Um, my clinic, the program at the university didn't allow us to go to the child's school. There wasn't that collaboration. I really wish that there had been because I would have loved to have seen if this could have carried over into the school setting um, and worked with his teachers on it. But unfortunately I was not able to do that. And then uh, the specific strategy for generalization was not included as part of the intervention. That would have also made it a stronger um, study, I think. So the future studies, you know, could include more training sessions, like I talked about, on how to train others to make sure that this is generalized and then maintenance, you know, would have also helped. Um, And then finally, the function of the vocal stereotypy. Now, I did my own functional behavior assessment, which was not included in the study, just prior with the client, because that was part of his his program at the clinic, but it was not included in this study. Um, gotcha. I think that that would have, uh, I think also that would have made it a stronger study because the, the function is important in terms of pitching what you're going to differentially reinforce the absence of vocal stereotypy with, you know, picking something that serves like the same function of the stereotypy would have a stronger effect. And it, even though it could have been sensory to begin with, it could have also come under the, um, could also be maintained by attention. It depends on what type of attention too. Right. Um, and I think it's often assumed that stereotypy is automatic, but that's not necessarily, not necessarily what it is. Um, it could be automatic, but then also come under multiple functions like attention, especially for vocal stereotypy, because it can produce a lot of attention even what you might consider like negative attention with reprimands, still attention. And that often um, comes to be in classrooms as well, you know? So those things I think um, would definitely be the areas to consider for the future and and future studies that use similar kinds of um, interventions. If you had, if if, a, person working on their dissertation Mm -hmm. or thesis Mm -hmm. called you and said hey we love this study we want to help progress this line of research Mm -hmm. but we only can really do one more study what would that one study be like what would be like the one variable that you would change or or how would you approach that really I would want to see more generalization be honest. I'm really curious. And actually, you know, unfortunately, I got the report that this child went to kindergarten and was struggling with this behavior. Uh, and I was like, oh, I wish I could be there and, um, and help him and teach his teachers, you know, like here and help generalize it to the new setting. Be like, we are still using green, you know, green level voice here. This is our classroom voice. So really it would be generalization and to see what kind of training needs to to be done um, with the teachers for that classroom setting. And then, um, you know, also looking at the function of the behavior, because I think that for this child, a lot of it was coming under the control of attention. Um, And even like the reprimands, Mm -hmm. I think would be very reinforcing to him. So I would really love to see more generalization. I would love to see, uh, you know, 2.0 for the study where I go to kindergarten with him and, um, you know, I'm able to train his teachers on it. That makes sense. Yeah, I think generalization, generalizing studies to other settings or testing generalization of studies in other settings is is critical. And of course, other participants as well, right? Right. We want to probably replicate this study with other participants, say, across different settings. For sure. Yeah. So if you're if you're looking for a thesis or dissertation, there you go. <laughs> you heard it from Molly. That'd be a good a good study to take on. Yes. Mm-hmm. For people who are interested in this area of research, 
do you have other recommendations, resources that people should consider or check out? Yes. Um, so when I was, you know, reading the study, um, I took a lot of inspiration from the Haley article. Um, let's see. The use of antecedent intervention to decrease vocal stereotypy of a student with autism in the general education classroom. And then also the uh, LaPrime and Dietrich article, an evaluation of a treatment package consisting this long title of discrimination training and differential reinforcement with response costs and a social story on vocal stereotypy for a preschooler with autism in a preschool classroom. Um, <laughs> a very long title, but uh, those were two that I took a lot of inspiration from for this study, and it was through reading about the increase in functional speech that I decided that that's something I really wanted to follow up on. Um, in terms of decibel meter. Um, it was actually an article, it was uh, by Edgerton and Wine, and it was 2017, called Speak Up, Increasing Conversational Volume in a Child with Autism Spectrum Disorder, also published by Behavior Analysis in Practice. And this is actually one that was focused on increasing um, conversational voice level of a child who spoke too quietly. Oh. No, you can go either way. Um, <laughs> and so, but I was, you know, interested in what they did. Actually, I read this after I decided on the decibel meter when I started doing research to see if anyone had ever done this before. And, um, and I had already started my research with my own decibel meter, but they have an interesting um, one that they use called the Voice Meter Pro app which looks like it's actually better than mine, I would say. Um, okay. So I would check that out. Like, I really like the visuals that they included for that. So that could be another one. Um, and then also just doing more research on um, collateral effects of interventions, because I think that that's something that um, occurs often and that you know should be also included more in the data that we're gathering. So there was a systematic review of collateral effects of focus interventions for children with autism spectrum disorder. Um, and it's by Ledbetter, Cho, et al. And, um, and so that was also, you know, they include 46 different studies that did measure the effects um, the collateral effects during the study. And, um, and they also talk about how targeted decreases in stereotypy also showed collateral improvements across a range of behaviors. So I think whenever we are doing studies on stereotypy and decreasing stereotypy specifically, um, I think we should be collecting and um, you know, taking more data on the other behaviors that are perhaps replacing that. Those are great references and resources. Thank you for sharing those. Sure. We'll, of course, link to all those papers in the show notes. So if you're listening and interested, check out our show notes. That should link to everything we've talked about so far. And with that, I'll say thank you, Molly, for writing the paper and coming on the show today to talk about it. It was really interesting, really clever way of setting up an intervention to address a pretty complicated behavior. So thank you for sharing your work. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Before you take off, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers we should review on this show. The links to our social media are found in the show notes. I'd also like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and my production assistant for this episode, Taylor Rainhill. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.